Welcome once again to Sharing Socks. I'm Southside Sox duty geezer Lee Allen. With me, my son and West Coast correspondent Will, and with us a very special guest. We are sharing multicolored socks uh, today because our guest, while a longtime professor at the University of Illinois, is a New England native and a lifelong fan of those other socks. So we have a little red bleed in coming today, even though I was born in Boston and knew better than to stay with that team when I moved to Chicago. Our guest is Dr. Alan Nathan, Professor Emeritus of Physics at the University of Illinois, and by virtually every source I've seen, the foremost expert on the physics of baseball that there is. Recipient this year of the Henry Chadwick Award for Contributions to Baseball that's put out by the Sabre folks. And uh, also a consultant to Major League Baseball, much uh, sourced on anything and everything. And uh, Alan, we really appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, yeah, raising the level beyond two guys blathering and pretending they know what they're talking about. It's nice to have somebody who actually does. But we're going to talk, I initially, when I, when I first contacted Alan, I wanted to talk about the baseball itself and what could be done there to get rid of the three true outcomes thing that we've wandered into and get back into people running around bases. Um, but since then, an elephant has entered the room and that obviously is spin rates, doctoring of baseballs and everything that goes along with that. So we're gonna talk about spin rates first. We're gonna to get to the baseball later. We're going to get to Allen's cure uh, for baseball if there is one within the, the realm of physics or, or anything else that he finds of the proper realm. We're going to start out with spin rates, and can you expect the kind of basic? I mean, we know you spin a baseball, and, and and it can move, and everybody learns that when they're very young. But uh, things like Magnus Force, every time I say that, I, I think of Clint Eastwood. But Magnus Force, Bauer units, uh, what we have gotten into by going from just hey, you got to spin the ball to curve it, to the incredible scientific nature that exists right now. Can can you take us through that in in, in a layman's way uh you mean specifically about the the movement on the pitch uh, yeah yeah what, what's what's been rates are doing and how yeah okay so yeah so uh uh when the ball moves through the air it, it experiences uh various forces on it and the most simple of, of which is just simply gravity which is always pulling it down but in addition, it, it, it has forces on it due to the fact that it's moving through the air. And one of those forces is what's known as air drag or air resistance, which slows the ball down, but doesn't change its direction. It slows it down. So, for example, um, a 95-mile-per-hour fastball at release, by the time it crosses home plate, is probably only going about 87, 86 miles an hour. So it loses speed that way as it collides with air molecules. Uh, but the, for, the, for present purposes, the more important uh, of these forces is what is known as the Magnus force. It's, it's the force on a spinning baseball. And uh, it's what makes the curveball curve. But it, I mean, literally, all, virtually all pitches, except knuckleballs, have spin on them. And the movement, uh, the amount of movement depends on the spin rate the number of revolutions per minute or RPM and the direction of the movement primarily depends on what is called the spin axis. So uh, 
can get a little baseball here as a demo. So if the ball is coming at you and it has backspin on it, well, so let me let me just back up a second. If you want to know the direction of the movement due to the spin, it, you look at the leading edge of the ball that's coming at you, and the way that ball is turning, the direction of that ball is turning is the direction of that so-called magnus force, and which will be the direction of the movement. So a four-seam fastball coming at you, uh, notice that the uh, it has backspin on it, and the front of the ball is moving upward, and that's the direction of the movement. It basically is opposing gravity. And nowadays, pitchers, uh, the mon- mantra among pitches is when you're throwing a four-seam pa- fastball, you want a lot of spin on it, so the ball is sort of high in the zone, okay? The, sort of the opposite would be the curveball, which primarily has top spin. And so you see the front of the ball is moving down, and that's the direction of the movement. So whereas a four-seam fastball doesn't drop as much as it would just from gravity, a curveball drops more than you would guess just from gravity alone. And so, you know, keeping the fastball up and the curveball down, that's sort of what pitchers are trying to do these days. And then, you know, there's you could have the ball spinning sideways uh, and all kinds of different orientations in between. So that's sort of the basic thing. Uh, the the batter, the pitcher is trying to confuse the batter by uh, by having the ball move in different directions, and that movement direction is largely controlled, not entirely, but largely controlled by the way, by the so-called spin axis, the way that the axis about which the ball is spinning. Of course, we're now in the great controversy of the use of sticky stuff so that pitchers can get a stronger grip, which at least in theory allows them to put in more spins. And we're talking over 2000 revolutions a minute, basically and at a good, most good pitchers are gonna be, gets up to 2,500 or so, I guess, in some things. Will and I have ignorantly in the past said, well, this is gonna affect the guys with their sliders and their curveballs. But as I read your papers, I came to understand that's not true, that the biggest effect of spin rate is on four-seam fastballs up in the zone. And that's what's been devastating with the increase of the spider attack and the other gunk. Am I accurate in that? No, you most certainly are, yes. And uh, so uh, the the sticky stuff on the ball, whatever it may be, as you point out, it allows the batter, to, the pitcher to get a more spin on the ball. I mean, technically what's going on here, if you want to talk physics a little bit, you're actually increasing the friction between the fingers and the surface of the ball. It's that friction that allows the pitcher to, in effect, pull down on the ball, okay, as it's being released. Uh, and the friction allows it to be pulled down without slipping. If you slip, if the fingers slip along the surface of the ball, uh, it's going to reduce the spin considerably. And so the sticky stuff uh, increases what is called the coefficient of friction, another technical term. Um, But basically that's the idea. It it allows that pitcher to be able to pull down harder without slipping. uh, So you get more spin on the ball and therefore more movement on the ball and therefore swing and a miss. Can I can I ask a question? Uh, I, I understand the the substance causing 
the extra friction, giving them more ability to grip the ball and, and put the spin on it. On a, on a four-seam fastball, uh, when they're doing that, does the extra spin give them any extra miles per hour? Or is it all just about the movement of the ball? Uh, it's primarily about the movement. Uh, it, it, interestingly, it's interesting you asked that question. I just saw some postings today on Twitter. Uh, so in the last week or a couple of weeks, uh, spin rates have gone down. Uh, but uh, the speed of four-seam basketballs has not gone down. They're more or less independent quantities. So the, you know, the it's really the forward motion of the arm that is giving the pitch the speed. It's the pulling down with the fingers. It's really a separate thing altogether that is primarily giving it the spin. So you, they're, they're not totally independent of each other, but they're sort of independent of each other. What, what is the conflict? Because I know from coaching back in ancient days before spin rate was, I guess, even measurable, let alone something that was discussed, you taught to hold the fastball pretty lightly because you wanted to minimize the drag on the ball. You wanted to release it with as less as little friction as possible. Whereas you held, uh, you held your uh, changeup tightly so that with the same arm motion, you would have less spin. How does that conflict with using the gunk to, to get spin? Does, it, does that actually in some ways harm velocity? I don't think so. Uh, you, you mean, does the, does the sticky stuff uh, reduce the speed? Is that what you're asking? By creating more friction, yeah. No, I, I, I don't. I don't I, of course, unless it were so sticky that it just never left your hand. <laughs> that would be an extreme case, of course. No, I, I mean, my, my picture of what's going on is sort of what I just explained, that, it, that really the arms... So as the ball is released, certainly the, the pitcher is giving the, there are really two different motions of the, of the fingers that are remaining on the ball. Okay. One is the downward pull. I'm talking fastballs now, the downward pull to give it the spin, but there's also a forward push. And when, with the circle change, uh, your, uh, your, effectively eliminating that forward, that extra forward push. I mean, most of the speed comes from the arm speed, most of the speed of the pitch, but you are giving it an extra push forward with the fingers at the end for a fastball, but not for a changeup. You grip the ball in such a way that you don't do that. So that way you can have the same arm speed, but a slower uh, release speed. Have you got an idea how much goop makes a difference in it's been very 20, 30%. Yeah, I, I, I really don't. I, I suspect you don't need very much. What what really matters is the properties of the, the stuff they're putting on. I don't think it needs to be a lot. Uh, I mean, if I were advising a pitcher on how to how to do this, I would say just a very thin layer uh, is really all you need because your fingers are not covering the whole ball. They're just you know, they're, they're just covering a very small part of it. So you don't need, it doesn't need to be sticking up so that you, you know, anyone can see it. <laughs> and yeah. so the, the, a thin layer is all that's needed and anything more than a thin layer, I don't think not only does it not help you, but that makes it more obvious that you're doing it. Uh, 
can can we go even even more old school because when when the sticky tack stuff first came up i was picturing guys slopping goop onto the ball and, and grabbing it much like uh how people would use the spitball back in the day how does how does the spitball differ from from what pitchers are doing with this spider tack right so the, the spitball is there there are two different effects of a spitball and it's never been exactly clear to me which of those two effects is the dominant effect so one effect of the spitball is as you say you put a glop of something on the ball and uh what is well known is that whenever the ball you know whenever there's some something sticking up from the surface of the ball whether it's the seams or saliva a glop of stuff of that or uh even the scuff mark can actually affect the movement of the ball in sort of unexpected ways uh, of course nowadays there remember i mentioned that the spin axis largely determines the direction of the movement and it's not quite right because the seams also play a role and one of the buzzwords around these days is seam shifted weight um so one of one effect of having some foreign substance really sticking up from the surface of the ball is the potential for having it move in some unexpected way, or certainly unexpected by the batter. It becomes a knuckleball of sorts. Say it again. It becomes kind of like a knuckleball then, in that sense. In a way, that's right. Yeah, the seam shifted wake is really it, it, the physics behind that is really the same as the physics behind a knuckleball. With a knuckleball, you know, the seams are. Are always have more or less the same orientation since the ball is not spinning. So you really can have a big effect. And when the ball is spinning, um, the, the whole secret behind this so-called seam shifted wake is to find some orientation of the ball so that seams kind of show up more or less on the same side of the ball, even though it's spinning. And so it's a, a little bit of trick to learning how to do that. But let me go on to the second thing. The second okay. thing, the second reason for the saliva on the ball is actually quite the opposite of putting the sticky stuff. It's to reduce the amount of friction so that the, uh, so for example, if you want a ball that's low in the zone uh, and still thrown pretty hard, you would do something like throw a split finger fastball. So you can throw a split finger fastball, you know, not as hard as a four seamer, but pretty hard. And the whole idea of the split finger is to reduce the amount of backspin on the ball so the ball doesn't uh, have an upward movement as much, so it actually drops more. And I think the one of the effects of the spitball was uh, to provide lubrication to reduce the friction so there's less backspin on the ball, and it therefore drops more. Or certainly more than the batter expects. You know, the batter to the extent that, uh, you know, he can sort of see the ball leave the hands and sort of predict where it's going to go. Uh, you, you know, if, if, if the spin rate is lower than he expects for that, for that amount of speed, then, uh, you know, he's going to swing over. Do, do you buy what uh, some, many of the pitchers are, are saying that we just can't grip the ball without this, this stuff on And I, and I ask that because, None of them grew up with this kind of cheating. From, from little league through teen years, high school, college, they didn't do it. 
not necessarily because they were ethical or their coaches were, but because you couldn't. You didn't, you didn't change the ball every batter or even every inning. You took the ball, you tossed it back on the mound for, for the next guy to use. Uh, when I was coaching, we played through Southwest Ohio when I was playing. It was our responsibility to bring three balls to the game. <laughs> that was it. You know, if, if, if two of them got lost in the woods, you had to break out another one. But they were they weren't even rubbed down by Delaware River Bottom. Do you, do you believe they really? And, and they were fine. They didn't hit batters any more than the they hit batters uh, in the majors. Which incidentally, it's something I saw trying to research is hit batters grew through the sticky stuff thing, according to a, an article in Fangraphs, greatly many more hit betters in 2019 than in previous years, for example. But anyhow, do, do you buy that they can't grip it or, or do you think they're just looking for an excuse? Well, you know, I can only tell you what they've told me. And to me, it makes sense. And so here's what they tell me. They tell me, especially on a cold, dry day, uh, well, so uh, under normal circumstances, under normal circumstances, the ball is mudded up. That already gives you some amount of friction. Um, but then what happens is the pitcher uses the rosin bag, and that rosin bag mixes with the perspiration on his hands to give you sort of a naturally sticky substance that, that uh, you know, for time in memoriam, that's how pitchers got a good grip on the ball. But on a cold or especially dry day, there's no perspiration on the hands. And so the ball really starts to feel really, really slick as a result of that. And it's been known for a long time now that pitches would use foreign substances. You know, typically it was some kind of sunscreen. There are various kinds that some pitches swear by certain kinds and others by other kinds where you mix the sunscreen with the rosin and that provides the sticky stickiness. And to some, to a large extent, it's been tolerated by everybody because, you know, if a guy is going to be throwing a 95 mile per hour fastball, you'd like to think he's got some control over it uh, because <laughs> the batter's sitting there like a live target. So ev- everyone has sort of tolerated it as long as you kind of weren't too obvious about how you're doing it. But uh, in the last, I, I, I don't know when this thing with the spider pack and other really sticky things began, but uh, I haven't really tried to track that. But somewhere along the way, people started to use this really, really sticky stuff. And then the spin rates really started to go up. Uh, and that's sort of where we are, that uh, people have, people who study these things have looked at the data and uh, you know, I, I, I guess I guess one of the primary issues is the fact that the number of uh, plate appearances ending in a strikeout has gone up a lot. It's been going up now for I don't know seven or eight years, and so pretty steadily. Um, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, three true outcomes: uh, you know, walks, strikeouts, home runs all result in balls that are not put in play. And that, to a lot of fans, and I count myself as one of those fans, that makes less interesting. (laughs) I mean, you know, know, when I see great fielding plays, 
I, you know, I stand up and applaud, even if it's not my team that's doing it. Uh, you know, you, you just have to appreciate the athleticism that, that uh, professional players have. And it, the game simply becomes, to me, and I think to a lot of fans, and I think to Major League Baseball, the management, it becomes a lot less interesting when, when you, basically the game is dominated by home runs and strikeouts. It's, do you think that, that this enforcement, the new enforcement, is, is going to make a major difference, that it's going to reduce spin rates, obviously some, but probably not a heck of a lot? Uh, I looked at uh, scoring, just very, very small sample size here. The total runs yesterday were fewer than the Tuesday before, which is in turn fewer than the Tuesday before, which was before they announced they were going to do this. So do you think this is really going to have an effect on, on what happens in the game? Um, that's a, it's an interesting question. And um, so I, I, let me give you some numbers here. Uh, well, maybe not exactly numbers, uh, but uh, if you look, if you start tracking uh, spin rates, and I've been tracking them now ever since this whole thing began. Uh, I see, I'm just looking at it right now uh, on a different screen, and I see that spin rates through Monday or through, through, through the weekend games have dropped on a four-seam fastball, have dropped about uh, 100 RPM, uh, maybe a little even more than that. Uh, Hmm. Yeah, about a hundred RPM. So, which is maybe five uh, percent drop. And so, I, I, I'm guessing that that is going to result in movements on pitches decreasing by uh, somewhere between a half an inch and an inch. Now, does that matter? Uh, it's a little. Uh, it's a little hard to say whether. It, I mean, it's going to matter to some extent. It doesn't seem like a, a whole lot extra movement that, you know, one inch. Um, but, you know, baseball's a game of inches. You know, you look at if, if, the, if, if the fastball, uh, uh, if the, the amount of drop on the pitch is, you know, an inch different, and, you know, there's not a lot of inches to play with. You know, you get the diameter of the bat, which is maybe two and five-eighths inches. The diameter of the ball is a little less than three inches. So you don't have a lot of inches to play with there. And so balls that maybe would have been swung and missed or maybe fouled off, maybe uh, would be more uh, uh, squared up than they were before. So so these things matter. And especially, oh, I wouldn't, quite frankly, I would not expect to see an effect, you know, over one day. I mean, the fact that runs are, you know, offenses, you know, up a little bit or down a little bit on any given day, I think you you really do need a lot of data before, I think, before you start to see these effects. And quite frankly, I would argue that a lot of the analysis that I've seen uh, looking at the effects of higher spin or lower spin as in the last couple of weeks, in a way, I think it's a little premature. Again, this is my own opinion, but I, I think you really need to, I personally think you need probably a lot of data before you start to see the effects. But again, that's my own opinion. Can you have Do we, I, 
Let me ask one real quick, actually. Uh, you know, there's so much focus for the batters now on launch angle. Uh, we've we've gotten away from, you know, poking those base hits or even just going for the solid line drive. We're, we're looking at launch angle. It seems to me, and again, I know nothing about any of this, uh, but it seems to me that if the ball is dropping uh, an inch less than usual or, or rising an inch less, uh, that maybe we can get out of this uh, home run or bust mentality and, and start squaring up because it sounds like, you know, if you, if you take away that inch, you're going to get the barrel of the bat a bit more. As you were saying, you're less likely to foul off some of the pitches and get more of the barrel on them. Do we think that a, a reduction in spin rate could cause batters to uh, stop a, at least a little bit that focus on launch angle? Or is that just a mentality completely separate, do you think, from, from what the pitchers are doing to alter the game? That's a good question. Uh, I I don't have a scientific answer. Uh, I, I you know as a as a fan of the game, I think they're really separate issues. I think the the uh, the fact that batters are altering their swings to get a uh, a more optimum launch angle for for hitting long fly balls. I think I I personally think that it's due to the to the a massive shifting that goes on in baseball. So with the shifting, you know, the ball that might have been nicely squared up uh, with a low launch, you know, hit hard with a low launch angle and, uh, you know, a, a, a line drive over the infield that drops in front of the outfielder for a base hit or maybe in the gap for a double, um, that when you have the second baseman playing on the outfield grass for, a, you know, a left-handed hitter, you, basically it takes that away. So if, if, if they're taking away the kind of hard contact, low line drive hit, you might as well go for the fences. And I, I, I so I personally think that the, that the so-called launch angle revolution is, I think is driven by, by the shifting. Totally you know, reading, agree. Re- reading your stuff about backspin on batted balls, uh, you know, we think of launch angle as the, the batter is swinging up at a 23-degree angle, which means he's got almost no time in the plane of the ball coming in. But it almost seems, because you're saying quite, I don't know why I didn't think of it before, that backspin as, as well, exit velocity plus backspin is what makes the ball go long, long ways. So really, is it better for the batter to swing at a normal angle? I think 5% is what Ted Williams advised, and I'll take his advice. Uh, and aim for slightly under the oh, yeah, Red Sox fan, of course. <laughs> they aim slightly under the center of the ball rather than the you know, normal swing, slightly under the center, so you get the maximization of the exit velocity and the backspin. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, no, absolutely makes sense. So, um, so there's. Yeah, so if you look at Williams' book, The Science of Hitting, and he, he talks about having a slightly upward uh, uh, swing plane that more or less matches the downward plane of the baseball, just dropping largely from gravity, so that if you mistime the swing, then you can still make good contact as opposed to here's the ball coming in and you're swinging at an uppercut. There's only a very small region where you, 
in in space and therefore in time where where uh, you can get a good squared up collision. So what, what can you say about that? Uh, if if you're certainly if your goal in life is to try to get on base as often as possible, uh, I I think you would follow William's advice and. Sw- uh, 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 because I think, uh, to a large extent, most mishit baseballs are a lot. Certainly, a, a good fraction of them are due to mistiming. You're, a, you know, a little behind, a little in front. Uh, but if you can be behind or in front and still make good contact, uh, you know, that that's definitely a good thing. But yeah, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. I see the clock ticking up there. We better take the break very quickly and come back to the baseball and what you think should be done in the game of baseball to get it back to. Lots of adventure. Well, let's actually, uh, what we'll do here is we'll, we'll take a break um, and uh, we will come back. We'll talk about what can be done with the baseball. Uh, it's so great having you here, Alan. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I think we can all agree that what we've learned so far is uh, batted balls in play, fielders making great plays is great. And the other thing we can certainly agree on is that the Yankees suck. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that's fair. So uh, stick with us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> stick with us, and uh, we will be right back on Sharing Socks. Welcome back to Sharing Socks. We are here with a guy who is much smarter than me, Alan Nathan, and a guy who is a little less smart than me, uh, my father, the geezer. Just kidding. He's also significantly smarter than me. Uh, you'll notice I've done a little uh, costume change. I uh, did a play at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago years ago in which I uh, played a, a South Boston Bostonian uh, and they they dressed me with a Red Sox hat. So I'm sporting that here in my uh, solid anti-Yankee solidarity uh, with Alan. And uh, again, thank you so much for being here. The, the first half of our conversation about substances, really, really insightful. It's stuff I really wish I knew back when I was a pitcher for all those years. Uh, and really, as a hitter as well, it would have been nice to know which way the ball was going to go when I saw it leave the hand. Um, so maybe uh, Alan's got a future here as a, uh, a manager for his beloved Red Sox. Uh, but, uh, Dad, if you want to steer us in a, a slightly different direction uh, for some more baseball science, take it away. Uh, and, yeah, initially, when, when I first contacted Alan, we first communicated we're going to talk about before this sticky stuff matter stuck to us uh we're going to talk about the baseball the baseball itself we we know that the major leagues desperate for offense juiced up the baseball we know that they horribly overdid it and ball routine fly balls are ending up in 14th row and we know that they tried to bring it back some and may or may not have succeeded they had a committee to study all this were you on the committee on that, that they sure, they use good. So what did you talk about? What the committee found and what 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 the result of that was? Sure. So uh, one of the things that well, I think I think the primary thing that we found that was initially I would say very unexpected was the primary reason for the increase of home runs. So that, that this is what the committee was charged with finding. What is the reason for the increase in home runs, which began roughly at the all-star break in the 2015 season. And with the exception of 2018, where there was a dip, they've been more or less going up ever since. Uh, 
And the primary reason we found had to do with the, uh, the air resistance on the ball. So there is a property of the baseball called the drag coefficient, which sort of controls how much air resistance there is on the ball. And uh, it's affected by uh, various things, but I think primarily it's affected by the seams of the ball. So the seams, uh, it, it, it was found uh, through very careful studies uh, in, in laboratory experiments that uh, several things were found. First of all, uh, it, you take two virtually identical baseballs, they look the same, they feel the same, and you measure their drag coefficient. So the higher the drag coefficients, the less carry on the ball, the lower the drag coefficients, the more carry on the ball. You measure their drag coefficient in a laboratory setting where you have total control over everything, and you find that they're different. They're not different by a huge amount, but they're different by an amount that could that uh, could affect the distance on a sort of a long fly ball by, you know, maybe five to 10 feet. That's, that's big. Okay. <laughs> that's the difference between a warning track shot and a home run. So through a lot of modeling, so through, through a combination of laboratory experiments, um, analysis of stat cast data from major league baseball, and then some physics type modeling that you have to do we were able to convince ourselves that the, that uh, it, it really was the uh, drag coefficient that was the primary reason for the increase in home runs. And, and the reason why that was surprising was that no one ever really thought to look at the drag coefficient. It's not something that is routinely measured by Rawlings, the company that manufactures the baseball, or by Major League Baseball, you know, they contract with, with various independent labs to measure properties of the baseball, you know, the weight of the ball, and they, you know, they dissect the ball and do all kinds of measurements. Uh, and, um, uh, th but this was not one of them, because no one ever thought that this was all that important. Well, it turns out it is important. Moreover, it's control, you know, it, it probably largely has to do with the seams on the ball. So one of the really neat things that I got to do being on this committee was visit the manufacturing facility for the baseballs, which is in Costa Rica. So we had a, a whirlwind trip to Costa Rica, an all-day tour of the place, and I learned a lot about how baseballs are made. And uh, the, I, I mean, I came away inc incredibly impressed with how careful everything is done. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I am amazed that, you know, you compare one baseball to another baseball. I'm amazed that they're as uniform as they are, okay, with the exception of the drag coefficient. You know, but all of the properties, the weight of the ball, the size of the ball, you know, how hard it is to compress the ball, the bounciness of the ball. Those are very, very well under control. But they're all, most of that is done by a machine. You know, the winding of the wool is all done by a machine, very carefully prescribed how they do it. But the very last step is sewing the leather cover onto the ball, and that's all done by hand. There's a room full of maybe 200 people. I took a neat little video of this. 
that are spending all day long sewing. You know, this is the motion of their arms. They uh, sewing the cotton threads. You know uh, that bind together the the leather onto the onto the the thing that's primarily wool. And um, despite everyone's best effort, it's very hard to get these things sort of the same from one ball to another. You could imagine that it's difficult, given that it's done by hand. And so we, con- we concluded that, uh, that uh, the, the huge variation that you see from one ball to another, or, you know, not huge, but the, the su- substantial variation that really does affect the flight of the ball, uh, is is uh, almost unavoidable uh, given the way that balls are made. And could, could you have it done by machine? So one way, one thing you could do is is I don't think you could have this done by machine. This would be pretty complicated. I I don't know. I'm not an engineer, so I I wouldn't even know how to begin thinking about how to do this by machine. But you could imagine having some sort of solid molded ball you know you've seen you've probably seen these uh batting cage balls uh that are uh uh i I think they're maybe they're made out of rubber or something i'm not really sure i think so yeah it's a one-piece ball it's not as if there's stuff you know there's an outer cover or anything like that you could imagine building those things uniformly so one of the big one of the really interesting things that we also got to do was uh, we visited the United States Golf Association facility, which is in northern New Jersey, where they do all kinds of testing on golf clubs and golf balls. And in particular, they measure drag coefficients for golf balls. And uh, they do it maybe differently than was done for our committee, but they're more or less equivalent. It's not a difference in accuracy or anything. One of the things you find uh, is that when you take two golf balls that are from the same manufacturer, same dimple configuration and everything, you measure their drag coefficient, they're bang on the money. They're, they're perfectly agree with each other, which is very, very different than what you find for a baseball. But, you know, a golf ball is sort of a molded thing, right? It's, you, you can create some mold that makes these things virtually identical. You simply can't do that with a baseball. So I'm going to push back just a little bit on, uh, on something you said, Lee. I don't think uh, my own personal view, and I'm not really a spokesperson for Major League Baseball, but, but again, my own view, having seen the process sort of firsthand, I don't think there was has been any effort on the part of Major League Baseball to uh, or Rawlings to either juice the ball or dejuice the ball, with the exception of a of a change that they actually made this year and announced the change, where they decreased the weight by a little bit uh, and changed the bounciness by a little bit. But but prior to this year, uh, the variation you see from year to year and from one ball to another within a given year. Um, that's the way they came out, and I I I. I personally am persuaded that it's that 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 really it's it's not some nefarious conspiracy (laughs) among different people to to change the game by by doing that again one uh, this ball-to-ball variation the, the interesting thing we found was that the within a given season 
the ball-to-ball variation in this drag property was greater, probably significantly greater than the, the variation in the average drag property from one year to the next. And given that we don't have any great understanding about how to control that ball-to-ball variation within a given year, it's a much harder to control the, you know, the much smaller change from one year to the other that leads to quite different offensive statistics, such as home runs. So it's like a batter, whether a batter comes up and becomes a hero with his home run or a goat making the final out deep in center field could be just the luck of what baseball he happens to draw. I'm afraid that's the case. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of luck, but, 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 but again, there's a lot of luck in baseball. So for example, um, you know, the wind could be blowing out for one batter, but not for another batter, or if there are variations from one ballpark to another, uh, you know, there are variations from one pitcher to another. So look, baseball is, I, I'm not going to say primarily a game of luck, but most certainly there's a lot of luck involved. I mean, the best team within, doesn't always win, for example. Within, within the rules, uh, the regulations of what a baseball is, there's kind of a big range for something in a billion dollar business that is nine to nine and a quarter inches, I think, for the circumference and five to five and a quarter ounces. Yes. Did you, that, that's like 5% on, on the weight. That seems yeah. pretty random. Did you find that it's really not that, that they're really more consistent than that? Yes, that's, that's exactly what we learned. We learned that the specs, I don't know why they're as wide as they are. Uh, and our committee definitely recommended that they be tightened to reflect reality. Reality is that they are much more uniform than is allowed by the specs. Uh, and one of the things that's uh, that you didn't mention that's also uniform is the so-called coefficient of restitution, the so-called bounciness of the ball. Uh, that's much harder to get right uh, because you don't know what it is until you, until you test it. Uh, it's easy to measure the weight as you go along in the construction process, easy to measure the diameter. You know, at each step along the way, they're measuring these things. They have targets, you know, for the different layers of wool. Um, but the, C- the COR, the coefficient of restitution, you don't know that until it's all done. Nevertheless, they are very, very adept at controlling that to a much greater degree than the than the actual specification allows. Um, what about these humidor things? Is that going to be an impact as they spread through more stadiums? I believe so. Uh, the One of the things that Major League Baseball has been doing now for several years is they are requiring the clubs to monitor the storage temperature and relative humidity from where the balls are stored virtually on a daily basis. So if you, and we know very well from laboratory experiments, how two major properties of the ball depend on the humidity in which they're stored. One is this coefficient of restitution, the bounciness, and the other is the weight of the ball. When the ball absorbs water, it gets heavier. When it's dry, it gets lighter. And if you look at the variation across a, a major league season, you know, so from, you know, say from mid-March until, you know, late October, the variation 
you know, at a particular ballpark and in, in the relative humidity where the ball is stored, it's, it's varying in a systematic way. You know, it, it's usually dry in the, in, the, in the early spring and dry in the fall and humid in between. Uh, th- that affects, that affects uh, the properties of the ball in a not insignificant way. So one way to control for that is by storing balls in a humidor. And so now I believe there are eight major league clubs this year. I think it's eight, could be wrong, uh, for which the balls are stored at constant temperature, constant relative humidity. And that certainly will even out the seasonal effects. And uh, ultimately, to the extent that every major league club does this, will even out effects, you know, from one ballpark to another. So I think that's a I, that was one of our recommendations actually of our committee is that they start storing that they monitor the storage uh, environmental conditions and look to, looking towards the future which we're in now uh, using a humidor. Can I uh, can I ask one just for for other people who might be interested as well? Uh, we know that in Colorado we've got thinner air; uh, the ball is a little more likely to travel. Uh, you're talking about the humidity, the amount of water the ball absorbs. When they're playing a game in the middle of July in St. Louis, and you're looking at 88% humidity, 97 degree temperatures, how is that going to affect the ball as compared to, let's say, uh, Phoenix, when it's 105, but, you know, 30% humidity? Okay, so there, there are two separate things, uh, two separate ways of attacking your question here, uh, and, and you have to distinguish between them. There is the temperature and humidity of the storage location, and then there is the temperature and humidity of day of game. And the reason why the, uh, those two things are different, uh, or why they matter differently, is that it actually takes the baseball a long time, like days, before uh, after after being in a certain environment before it assumes the properties of that environment. So if the yeah. so if the ball is stored in a humidor and then it's brought out the day of the game and it happens to be very humid, that much higher humidity that day, the the the, the effect of the humidity, the storage humidity on that baseball is really not, hasn't really changed because it takes days to do it. Now, having said that, uh, temperature and humidity does affect the flight of the ball, independent of how the ball is stored. Uh, Humidity, actually not so much. Relative humidity does not play, it's all has to do with air density. So, uh, the air is less dense as the temperature is higher. It's less dense at elevation with Denver. Um, and it's actually a little bit less dense when it's humid, but it, that's not a big effect. So hu- relative humidity is not a big effect on the flight of the ball. It is, uh, the a temperature is a big effect. So the ball will carry much better on a hot day than it will on a cold day. And I, you know, players know that. They, they even adjust. I, I think we, we've used up so much of your time, which we really appreciate. But I want, to, I want to give you the chance now, lifelong fan, even of the wrong team, uh, <laughs> and 
thorough expert on physics and baseball to say, and, and we had enough chance to converse a little to say, the three of us all agree we want baseball games where we hit the ball in the field and people run around and people try to catch it instead of, oh, there he goes again, or uh, guys dragging their bats back to the dugout. What would you do? If you, you're, you're, Ron, you're, you're the commissioner, you're God. <laughs> what would you do to get baseball as best you could back to a more exciting form? Yeah, look, I'm no more expert than anyone else is, but uh, my, my pet thing that I would do is I would eliminate the shift. I would insist that there be two fielders on each side of second base and that no one is playing on the outfield grass. And that's what I would do. And I think that uh, I, I think that that would end up changing batter behavior in such a way that they would not be so enamored with trying to hit a home run. That's what I hope. But <laughs> I think we're all still figuring it out. We've certainly talked about eliminating the shift on this podcast before. Uh, we've even talked about, you know, not letting guys leave the batter's box, not letting pitchers recoup as long in between pitches, uh, potentially leading to to more base hits, more balls in play. Uh, but I think the number one thing we've discovered is that we really uh, have no clue exactly what is going to get us back. Uh, you know, people have, you know, so, some people have suggested shrinking the strike zone a little bit, maybe vertically shrinking it you can't change the size of home plate very easily but you could you could shrink the strikes on I don't know and people have talked about moving the pitching rubber back a foot or two feet and make any difference from, from, from a to, uh, uh, physics think, point of view yeah I think so I mean it, it gives it, you know it's a hundredth you, of a second or something yeah you know it takes maybe four tenths of a second, you know, 0.4 to 0.5 seconds for the pitch to, uh, uh, from release to home plate. And you, so you, you change, you know, uh, one foot is roughly 2% of the distance. So you're increasing the time by 2%. Seems like a small effect, but I think it actually could play a big role. But I, I it, that, that seems somehow, I can't bring myself to like that idea. <laughs> I well, totally last, last time this problem existed, uh, big time, uh, 1968, the solution that Major League Baseball tried and succeeded with was to lower the mound from 15 yeah. inches to 10. Can you lower it more without creating other big problems? Could that be something? Yeah, I probably, I, I mean... Uh, from a physics point of view, uh, you know, there would be some obvious effects. Uh, from a biomechanics point of view, I think pitches would certainly have to learn how to live with that different situation. I don't know how long it took them. That was a big change after the 68 season. I mean, going from 15 to 10 inches is huge. And I, I don't know how long it took the pitches to adjust to that. Maybe not long at all. I don't know, but um, uh, that's something that uh, somebody. It seems to me someone should experiment with. You know, one of the things that I think MLB is trying to do is experiment with different things in in the minor leagues, where the you know the 
things don't, you know, the penalty for messing up is not quite as great. And for a while, they were using independent minor leagues not, rather than affiliated leagues. But uh, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what they're doing this year. But there's a number of things I thought they were going to try. And, you know, I don't, I don't know where they are on that. Yeah, I believe they are experimenting with, uh, the one with a mound that's a little further yeah. back and with a mound that's a little lower. What I'm a, not sure exactly which leagues uh, they're doing what, that in. What about with the baseball itself? Would you recommend any changes in, in, in weight, in, in circumference, in seams higher or, or uh, and, and this is to combine because you got the conflict between making it harder to hit home runs and making it harder to strike people out. But you got to do both of those at the same time. Uh, relevant to the current sticky substance thing, in Japanese baseball, they they actually do they treat the leather coating with some 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 substance that provides a uniformly sticky feel to the ball. And um, I, I think that MLB should give very serious consideration to doing something similar. Number one, it obviates the need to, ru- to mud the ball. You don't have to mud it because it's already, and they don't in Japanese baseball. There's no need to do it. They don't have any Delaware River, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... Uh, and it, it, it probably is, is a solution to this issue of not being able to get a good grip on the ball. So I think MLB, I know that MLB experimented with that during spring training maybe a couple of years ago. And, oh. and, I, don't, and I, I don't know whether the pitchers didn't like it or didn't like it. or uh, I suspect they probably didn't like it. And that's probably why they haven't started to implement. But I think that would be, a, a great thing to do. And the second thing I think would be good to do is to, is for Rawlings to, uh, well, it's several things. Uh, one is measure drag coefficients. They don't measure them. Okay. They're measured by independent labs, but Rawlings could measure them for every batch of baseballs. Drag coefficients can be measured non-destructively. Uh, so they could do that and they should, and, and maybe they need to monitor that. Now that we know how important it is. The other thing that I always thought was very important to do was to keep track of the manufacturing cycle for each baseball. So you have a box of baseball in the storage bin, you know, for at Yankee Stadium. Uh, There ought to be something on there on the box that tells you uh, uh, with some code so, so that you can trace back and figure out when in the manufacturing cycle these were manufactured, in case it turns out that these balls turn out to be anomalous, at least we can try to track it down and figure out whether something funny happened during the manufacturing cycle. You, if you take the ball apart on the inside of the leather, there is a stamp on it that identifies the manufacturing bot, but you know, you don't want to have to take the ball apart. <laughs> We'd like to be able to. And so that was, that was one of the other things that we recommended uh, our committee recommended to MLB, but as far as I know, it has not been implemented yet. It ought to be though. Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to the near future uh, when we've when we've got a lot of this science down, and we're talking about 
you know, Tim Anderson's uh, batting average on balls in play against a certain drag coefficient and uh, <laughs> baseball restitution. And right. we're just we're just slamming players because they suck against bouncy baseballs, but they're great against non-bouncy baseballs. Because mm-hmm. uh, let's be real, when we can have more stats in baseball, we're going to have more that, stats. That's what we need. <laughs> that, that's our thing. Uh, but I think we're going to uh, wrap up for today. Alan, thank you so much for coming on. This is I've learned a lot. Um, I'm glad it is. Definitely my pleasure uh, talking with you guys about this. Yeah, Geezer, do you have any last thoughts? Well, I just want to, for those who might have stopped in in the middle here, uh, mentioned that our guest has been Dr. Alan Nathan, Professor Emeritus of Physics at the University of Illinois. And I'm going to say it, the world's foremost expert on the physics of baseball. And uh, a Red Sox fan, but nothing can be done about that at this point. (laughs) (laughs) We'll, right. we'll hope okay. our two teams meet in the playoffs this year and ours beats yours. <laughs> okay. I'll be, I hope to be in Chicago uh, sometime in September when the Red Sox play the White Sox. Hey, okay, right. you should, you should check it out. It's, this is the first time in a while. It's been really fun to go to a game on the South side. So uh, I, I hope you do make it out and uh, you know, always, you're always welcome to hit us up and we could try to catch a game with you. Um, but yes, thank you so much. This has been a real treat. Uh, listeners, thank you for tuning in today and we will catch you next time on sharing socks.